0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Neighbor Science. Uh, Today is a solo episode, so it's just me today, Ryan Salisbury. Um, uh, Chris is uh, looking for a job this week. He got a little distracted by the job hunt, um, just trying to get stable employment and stuff. So um, he totally forgot about doing the podcast, which is fine with me because (laughs) I was kind of uh playing an excessive amount of uh Assassin's Creed Odyssey uh this week. So we were planning to do an episode on the history of sugar, like the sugar industry um especially in the Caribbean. Uh but as it turns out, uh that's kind of a a big subject. <laughs> and uh the information on it is not collected uh you know in one place especially well. So um that's gonna take a while, so uh, maybe we'll do that for the next one. Um, I know that Chris is out uh the week after next, so we will we will not have one that week or maybe I'll do a solo one. Um, so this one or the next one may be the last one of the year that we do. Um, so uh I don't really have any specific topics um, that I planned on for this. Um, so I, I just would have been reading, uh, for the last couple hours. And, uh, I also asked for some listener questions. Uh, unfortunately not a whole lot of responses there, but, uh, I got a few, um, mostly from my friends in the group DM that I'm in on Twitter. But, um, yeah, so I'm sitting, uh, in my living room right now, which is unusual. Um, I've only ever recorded either in my basement uh, with Peter on the on the Skype, or uh, in in Chris's living room in um, in DC. So uh, this is a new thing for me. So I have uh, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure on the TV. I've been watching that for a while. Um, I don't I don't think you'll be able to hear it. Uh, I don't turn the TV up very loud, and uh, the mic doesn't pick up. A whole lot of extraneous audio so plus there's you know this i think this room's pretty acoustically sound there's definitely no echoes in here so i think that's pretty good um <coughs> so got a, uh, a nice bottle of beer um so let's get into it so i'll start with the listener questions which are pretty brief um the first one is from soy boy of the deep uh, who is uh, at half astronaut on Twitter? His name is very hard to spell, so I'll, I'll put it in the show description. Um, he's a good follow. He's a, a deep sea diver. Um, pretty cool guy, uh, anarcho dad, uh, etc. So um, he asked. I'm gonna pull up the actual text of the question because I want to read specifically what people are asking. So uh, Soy Boy asks. We want the biography of you and Peter and how y'all became tight neighbors for story time. So uh, Peter and I go, go pretty far back. I think I might have mentioned this um, in an early episode, um, but you know I can tell the whole thing. So uh, the biography of me uh, personally is uh, I grew up in northern Virginia um, in, in Ashburn, uh, which is a, a terrible place. Um it's basically where all of the government employees and defense contractors live. Uh, the ones that are like upper middle class. Um, you know, there's uh, government employees that that aren't so rich. Um, and then there's the ones that are, you know higher ups in the in the government. Um, see uh, Blair fixes um, study on personal income versus uh, hierarchy. And um, yeah, so they're the ones that are a few levels up in the in the hierarchy of the government or they are, um, you know, engineers or um, what have you in defense contracting companies, which are all um, centered in uh, Ashburn, Sterling, um, Herndon, um, Vienna, McLean, um, Tyson's um, and a few other places uh but mostly in uh sterling and uh herndon that's where i think the majority of them are um so i i grew up in ashburn um i went to uh, Broad run high school which is the same high school that uh patton Oswalt went to that's that's the claim to fame there he um <laughs> i'm i'm still mad about this he actually uh did the uh what you call it he was the the like the keynote speaker or whatever for uh, that like the graduation speaker for the class of 2008. I was the class of 2007. So we just had one of our classmates like who was a pretty good speaker. I mean for a high schooler uh and uh, did like poetry and stuff. Um he was our speaker and Pat Oswalt was the <laughs> fucking speaker for the class that graduated after us. So I'm pretty salty about that. Um Pat Oswalt's one of my favorite uh comedians. He's I think he's hilarious. Um uh, I went to uh, George Mason University. So, contrary to my my Twitter bio, which is fake, like almost always, um, I did not go to Oxford or Harvard. Uh, I did not major in econ, and I didn't get a PhD. I got a, a, a B.S. in computer science from George Mason University, the Coke-funded university that gets uh, 50 million dollars a year from the Koch brothers. Um, so, yeah, real real testament to that organization that I managed to come out, uh, even more of a, uh, anarchist communist <laughs> than I went in. Um, let's see. Um, and, and since then, since I graduated, I've been working at a, uh, software consulting company, uh, which basically just means that, uh, rather than developing a, a software product, we, um, provide services to other, uh, businesses and organizations and government agencies that um want custom software developed so we'll uh we specialize in creating survey systems with reporting tools um so that's that's our thing um so i'm somewhat of a data scientist i guess um i'm pretty good at writing queries and what have you so um that's my bio um for peter you know obviously he's not here so he can't um, he can't defend himself from all the terrible accusations I'm going to make against him. But, uh, he, uh, he was born in South Africa. I think he was born in Durban. Um, and that's also where he lived there most recently. So, um, he spent, uh, most of his life in South Africa. He, uh, spent a lot of time traveling around the world. Um, and I, I think he did so mostly without a lot of money to his name. Um, so he, he's talked to me about how, you know, he would go to a new place and, uh, just like start, he, he like learned really well how to ask if there's any work that could be done by, you know, someone who's like not a, an official, uh, long-term employee. So he worked in a lot of kitchens, um, probably doing dishes and stuff. Um, and, uh, I know he's mentioned on here before that he, um, he did, like, boat tours in the Caribbean. Um, so uh, he he called himself Rob Cayman for a while, which is, like, a pseudonym for him, um, which is, you know, uh, because he was in the Cayman Islands um, doing, like, boat tours and shit like that. So he got to see, like, a lot of rich people there and stuff, um, interact with a lot of folks like that, see a lot of yachts and stuff. Um, I, I, on the other hand, have never seen a yacht in person, but uh i do <clears throat> i have dealt with a lot of rich people because of the area that i live in uh which is one of the richest areas on earth um <clears throat> uh let's see he i i i don't think he went to college um but he's he's had oh no he did he did uh cuz he was a web developer for a while so he he had, had the same job as me for a while uh but he didn't like it and got sick of it um. So, um, Peter basically way more competent than I am uh, in almost anything. <laughs> uh. So he currently lives in Bahrain with uh, his wife. Um. And um, yeah, he's currently um doing some crazy shit. So he's managing like multiple businesses right now. Um, he's been setting up like an esports league. Uh, that's focused on uh women in um in bahrain uh so the the guy he's working for who i think is like some royal fancy boy fancy man uh he's like kind of a progressive guy um in that country and um so he's heading up this like female esports league and um he's also uh convinced the guy to start a project to help Uh, to try and reforest the island. So they're planning on planting a million trees there, which is really cool, I think. Um, So just just a testament to the the power of uh, business (laughs) to actually do things, Um, at least, you know, to some degree, you know. He's not solving every problem on the island, but uh, it's definitely a good thing uh, for these things to happen, I think. Um, And so how we met, um, we actually, we were both in... Uh, this, uh, thing that a lot of you might've heard of called the zeitgeist movement. If you don't know what that is, um, there was a movie that came out and I, th- I think it was, uh, 2005, 2006 called, uh, zeitgeist. And, um, it was by Peter Joseph, uh, who was, uh, just a filmmaker guy, um, who just put it on Google video and, uh didn't really expect it to go very far and and it ended up like blowing up it was about like um how it was sort of like anti-state anti-capitalist but there was no like coherent theory behind it so I wouldn't call it like anarchist or anything like that but um <clears throat> yeah it was basically about how um the current society that we live in is is unjust and um, I think there was some like nine eleven truther stuff. I never actually saw the original Zeitgeist or even the, the second one, um Zeitgeist Addendum. Um so because of the popularity of the first one, he made a second one called Zeitgeist Addendum. And then um there was a third one that he made in I I think it was like two thousand nine um called Zeitgeist Moving Forward. And that one was basically about how um there's going to be, you know, a, a social collapse. And um how you know, again, society is is fundamental the society that we live in is fundamentally unjust. And we need to um create uh what some were calling a resource based economy, um, in order to deal with it. So it's very heavily inspired by this uh one guy, uh Jacques Fresco, who's like um sort of a grifter. Um basically like lives in i think it's called venus florida yeah because his thing is called the venus project so um he basically like took technocracy and like post-scarcity anarchism and sort of mixed it mixed it all together with his personal ideology which is like extremely like radical centrist um he uh he's kind of a i hate that there's no word for this besides stem lord but he's kind of a stem lord i want to say scientist but (laughs) you know someone who believes in scientism they're a scientist uh but that doesn't really work obviously um so uh jacques fresco is kind of a stem lord um he thinks that politics is all bullshit um and that we just need to like manage uh everything correctly and that um there's no there's no like uh decisions that can be solved with political means it's all technical everything's technical um so we just need to create the technically best system um so i i both of us peter and i were drinking this for a while um so yeah uh anyway uh zeitgeist movement um the zeitgeist movement um was created um around this resource-based economy thing the like basically technocracy thing that uh jacques fresco came up with and peter um kind of rebranded and um you know explained it in his own way through his film um and it was supposed to be like an activist organization to bring about the resource-based economy uh but unfortunately since um both fresco and joseph uh believed in this this idea of oh everything is Like, politics is all bullshit. Um, We just need to come up with a technically best system um, that exceptionally informed their (laughs) activism. Um, It it really informed their activism. So the forms of activism that they took part in were basically go out and educate people on what a resource-based economy is. And then eventually, once everyone knows what it is, they'll say, oh, yeah, of course, that's the best thing to do, and uh, then we'll just do it. So no... No power analysis at all. Um, no thought that maybe some people just don't want that. They they don't want everyone to be equal. Um, they think that that's bad and it's commie bullshit and that uh, it, you're a danger to society and you should be killed. Uh, no thought to that whatsoever. So the movement kind of fizzled out after a couple of years, probably in like um, 2013 was like where it was just you know, a shadow of itself. Um, <clears throat> so at one point there was like a social network uh, that someone created using like a, a free tool to create a, your, your own social network called TZM network. And uh, that's where Peter and I met. So um, we both had accounts on there and uh, there were some forums on there. And so we were both big forum heads. Um, I've been posting since I was uh, probably like 10 years old. Uh, I started on um Neopets um and then moved on to uh, Gaia Online and uh I also went on some random forums there was uh an Invader Zim forum that I was really into and I was like 12 cuz you know that's the kind of thing that 12 <laughs> year olds love um uh yeah so we met on the TZM forum and um <clears throat> we kind of lost contact for a few years and uh then we found each other on Facebook uh, I think through like the suggested friends and, um, yeah, uh, we'd been talking for a while. He, you know, we commented on each other's posts, we joined the same Facebook groups and then, uh, eventually I wanted to start a podcast and I didn't know anyone that could really, um, you know, keep up with what I was talking about. Um, because most of my friends in real life aren't, they aren't into politics and they definitely aren't into, um, economics or anything like that. Um, so, Um, Peter was the only person I could really think of, uh, to join one to, to like do a podcast with me. So I just asked him and, and then we started it. Um, yeah. So, um, and he didn't ask, but I'll, I'll go ahead and, uh, say how Chris and I met. Uh, we actually met like a year and a half ago at the, whenever the juggalo march was in DC, we both went there. Um, and, uh, I'm not, I'm not a juggalo personally. Um, I was never into ICP, but i thought it would be a fun thing to go to um and i i definitely went there because i wanted to talk i wanted to meet brian and brett from street fight um and there was a bunch of dsa people uh tabling there uh i knew a few of those guys um and gals and and non-binary pals um so uh i started talking to chris because uh he was around he was hanging out around um Brett and Brian and uh, uh, Sam Knight and Sam Sachs were there as well um, from the District Sentinel. Um, so uh, I was talking to all of them, and then uh, Brett and Brian disappeared somewhere. Um, so um, I ended up talking to Chris, and uh, we were both like dying of dehydration. <laughs> uh, so we walked off to uh, get uh, water, and um, as it turns out, uh, the National Mall is uh very far from any sort of free water. <laughs> so we ended up walking like uh many blocks to get to uh a Pete's coffee uh where coincidentally one of my old coworkers was the store manager uh there. Um and uh so we were so far from the event and uh they were already going to start the the like the actual march um soon after we walked away from there. Uh, we, we thought we could make it back. Uh, but so we were like, uh, well, I guess it's, uh, I guess we missed the March part. So I want to just hang out. So we just went, found uh, a bar to hang out at and, uh, yeah. Uh, then we hung out again, like a few months after that. And, um, then Peter said, uh, he wouldn't be able to do the podcast anymore. And so I thought, well, Chris is, uh, pretty knowledgeable about all this stuff and, uh, he's in the area. So I I have been wanting to record in person. Um, so um I yeah, I asked him and he was able to do it. So um now here we are in season 3, episode 10. Um so that's that's the answer to that. Um, hope you found that interesting. Um maybe I can have him give his his actual biography in a later episode, but um I I would butcher it if I tried to give it myself. Um, I know he's from the Midwest, and uh, he uh, grew up for quite some time in Indonesia. Those are the two main things that I can tell you. Um, okay, so the next question is from Cheech Guevara, which I love that name. <laughs> um, and he asks, when will economic collapse happen? Um, let me, uh, again, make sure I have... Yeah, when do you think economic collapse will happen? Um, so uh this is a this is a big question um i'm not sure if he means uh like the next recession or like the kind of collapse that i was talking about in like the tzm movie where it's like a serious and permanent uh social decline um a la the um fall of rome or um you know weimar germany or something like that um so in terms of the next recession uh i mean the figure i keep hearing is or the the prediction i keep hearing is 2020 um but i think that's from uh mainstream economists who um tend to be very optimistic they they definitely uh during the before like immediately prior to the 2007 collapse they were saying uh nothing bad is ever going to happen in this economy it's like this gravy train is going to roll forever uh like uh it's it's amazingly miraculous how stable and um permanent all the growth that has been for uh the last bunch of years and it, it that, that's just going to continue uh forever into the future um so one of the only people that that actually predicted um the 2007 2008 recession was uh professor steve keen um who wrote a book about it called uh, debunking economics uh which you know, it's about that and um, just generally how neoclassical economics is a load of shit. Um, it's based on uh, basically just assumptions all the way down. And um, anytime one of those assumptions is uh, empirically tested, uh, they it just fails completely. Um, and, and usually ends up being exactly the opposite of reality. Uh, so, like, uh, one example is... Um, mainstream economics uh has always assumed that um buyers are uh rational consumers with stable uh ordered preferences so like um you know if i have the choice between uh bread and and coffee um i will always choose bread because that's what i prefer and <clears throat> um so I will, ra- I will rationally act in a way that gets me more bread than coffee because that's what I prefer and that's how I maximize my utility. Um, <clears throat> but someone did a study to actually uh, test this to confirm, like, oh yeah, uh, of course, uh, consumers are rational and have stable ordered preferences. So uh, we'll just you know confirm that with a little study here. Um, and as it turns out, um, preferences are not stable; uh, they're not uh strictly ordered and they're not uh rational at all um so people offered the same choice multiple times would make different choices uh on those different times and um you know if you look at the assumptions of of different parts of economics stuff like this really like just absolutely destroys um their models because um they they use these kind of um, assumptions to make everything work the way that they e- expect it to, according to like uh, how they view reality. So, the mainstream economists would would view um, political economy as uh, first of all, it's it's just economics. Um, there is no real politics involved, other than like interference in the in the market equilibrium. Um, So the market is just uh, a collection of buyers and sellers, which is, uh, you know, equivalent to exactly one buyer and one seller uh, selling one product, uh, which is output, um, which just means like money, basically. (laughs) Um, And uh, prices uh, fluctuate according to changes in supply and demand um, to reach like a, an equilibrium uh, just like a physical system um you know with uh like a thermodynamic system will um things will move around like energy will shift around until the whole system is uh in equilibrium so they assume that's what the economy is like um which is all rooted in the this idea that um like the the newtonian worldview essentially um everything is based on um like the, it's as if the world operates as a physical system, um, just like you know a like a mechanical um, system would, or a thermodynamic system would. So they just assume that all of reality works like that. Um, and uh maybe I can get into this in, a, in another episode, but um according to uh, a book I've mentioned, a few times, uh, inventing capitalism by Michael Perelman, um, early political economists uh, actually believed that the economy was driven by uh, like heteronomous force, and heteronomous just means like not uh, like coming from outside. So to contrast that to autonomous. So um, when uh, like when Smith talked about the invisible hand of the market, uh, he literally believed that there was like a heteronomous force that uh, drove changes in the market. Uh, that weren't just caused by you know human actions so um even though like uh like austrian economics which is like a, a fringe branch um is almost entirely full of shit one thing they get right is um everything in the economy is is human action um nothing just happens automatically so um anything that happens uh has to come from a someone acting and and doing something intentionally um but anyway i'm getting way off track so um the ec- economic collapse uh the the total social collapse i don't know um it really comes down to a question of um does capitalism actually need uh physical productivity and re- resources to to function uh because the marxist view of course is that um capitalism is private ownership of the mean- means of production that um you know, it reflects a a physical, like an actual physical industrial process, and that um, the uh, share of uh, or the uh, rate of profit uh, declines over time, and uh, that that would eventually result in um, like the the failure of the capitalist system. But then the um, capitalist power view, which is what I take and uh, Peter takes as well. I think Chris is, is getting on board, but he's not all the way there. Um, the capitalist power view on it is that capitalism is a system of distribution, um, that physical production doesn't actually matter at all, um, and that uh, capitalism actually thrives on the sabotage of um, industry and not uh, the growth of, uh, of industry or the the ownership of industry. So um so according to the capitalist power view um even if like the resource base starts to dwindle um that doesn't necessarily mean that capitalism itself is going to fail. Um I think um if that does happen uh the you know the major players will shift significantly um, Obviously, the tech industry isn't going to be, um, you know, as big as it would be with uh, fully functioning industry and um, plenty plentiful resources. Um, but if uh, there is a social collapse, um, you know, that doesn't necessarily alter the balance of power in terms of um, which state is in charge and um, who gets to control. The resources uh, that we still have left. So, um, you know, obviously the U.S. military is aware that climate change exists and is a threat, and their plan to deal with it is to maintain U.S. hegemony <laughs> and um, take what we can before um, you know the gravy train runs out of steam. Um, and uh, so, I think I think that. Like, uh, if not oil companies specifically, energy companies in general, uh, will still be extremely important because people are still going to need energy, even if uh, we're going to have to make do with less. Um, landowners are are most likely going to uh, be even becoming even more powerful. Um, like basically, all that we need to happen. Um, for capitalism to survive like a, a resource collapse would be um, for a state to maintain control um, and to be able to like reconfigure things such that um, they still have like a um, you know a set of capitalist institutions uh, it still has uh, power over people that can be meaningfully exercised and uh, it, it does so in a way that uh, is is the highly technical capitalist form. Um, so I, I, I think it's possible that, you know, economic collapse doesn't really happen until like we're basically, uh, living in fiefdoms, <laughs> you know, clawing the guts of the earth for whatever tubers grow wild <laughs> because everything else is dead. Um, I don't know. I, I don't think that, um, economic collapse is a given, um, I I don't, I, I think peak oil has been predicted for a, a very long time. And uh, while obviously oil supplies aren't infinite, so they eventually do have to decline, um, I think that uh, somehow they will, um, well, I don't know. Um, they've managed to put it off for, quite a long time and uh the us uh for the last several months has been the number one producer of oil in the world overtaking saudi arabia um mostly due to texas which you know they've uh we we thought that the end of texas oil was like in the 70s uh and it turns out if you just uh fucking destroy the planet uh you can get more oil out of it so um uh sorry I don't have a better answer to that question. Um, but it's a really hard one. Um it would be really cool if I could get Steve Keen on here. Uh he actually has a podcast as well. Um, but it's it's almost totally Patreon, uh like premium episodes. It's like he, he puts out like five minutes of each episode and like the rest of it's behind a paywall. Um but you know, maybe I could get him on. Uh he's definitely the uh the less famous um lefty economist uh between him and um richard wolf um so i'm not holding my breath on getting richard wolf on here and uh he's i think he's a little too marxist for me um i think we would butt heads a little um i i just recently saw a tweet of his that i thought was was very inaccurate um where he basically defines what capitalism is and uh he takes a very marxist view and uh you know, said something about like private ownership of the means of production and all that stuff. And um, the reason that I, I don't think that that's a good definition, the private ownership of the means of production thing is because every state system that has ever existed has been based on private ownership of the means of production. So um, like medieval uh, states, they had a land. They had a landowning class that wasn't like it, it wasn't like the government owned the land um, they did. Um, much in the same way that they do now, like technically, uh, the U.S. government owns all the land in the United States because it has eminent domain. So, uh, even if you even if you have a deed to it, if the state decides we need that land, then you're <laughs> you're not really a landowner. So, um, and and I think that applies to just about anything. You know, they could they can seize whatever they want. Property rights are are just granted; they're not really rights. They're privileges granted to you by the state. Um and so I think private ownership of the means of production describes any state system. Um you know, a class society describes any state system. Um let's we'll see what else. Production for profit. I mean yeah, uh any any state is going to have production for profit. Um I think what really differentiates capitalism is is its source of legitimacy, which is just um the your your financial earnings your ability to to um accumulate power uh through in the form of money um faster than um others and um it's like a, it's a more um deferred system so rather than everything being chartered by directly by the state um the state sort of sets up rules uh for you to create new parts of the state uh on your own and um you know it'll it'll like give you money like the government will give you money to fund your organization um but the the act of forming it uh is initiated by a a private party and um and it's a highly technical system that uses uh capitalization um to accumulate power as as best it can and um capitalization for those who haven't heard the uh capitalist power episodes which i highly recommend is um valuing an asset according to its expected future value adjusted for risk so previous systems uh operated on the idea of stock um and uh looked at value as uh, something that exists um in the present and not uh something that will exist in the future um and so i I think those are the major differences is the source of legitimacy um the technicality uh capitalization and um the like allowing of um you know uh non non non-chartered um parties to initiate their own parts of the state uh I was mostly off-topic, but again, it's a very hard question. I'm sorry, Cheech. Um, so my last question is from uh, Chloe, um, and she asks why. And uh, the answer to that, I mean, it's a very philosophical question. I will, I'll give you that, Chloe. Um, I, uh, I waited this one for a long time, and um, I, I think, I have to say my answer is uh, because. So, I hope that helps. Um, Let's see. So, that's all for questions. Um, So, another thing I wanted to talk about is, um, is automation actually destroying jobs? You know, we've been hearing for years about automation displacing jobs. And, um, you know, the prediction in, like, 2014, 2015 was uh, it's going to get rid of millions of jobs permanently we're going to start seeing the effects of automation extremely soon. Um, there's just going to be tons of technological unemployment, and we need to institute a universal basic income to fix this uh, as soon as possible. Um, and, of course, uh, no one in the government listened to this. Um, they might have mentioned something about it in passing, but, you know, obviously the Obama administration uh, didn't do shit about shit, let alone uh, create a uh, sweeping radical uh, change like universal basic income um, that would you know improve the lives of millions of people, especially those uh, who were uh, forced out of their homes by the uh, economic collapse and the subsequent response to it, which instead of uh, you know saying that people could stay in their homes even if they had some bullshit shitty mortgage from uh, Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae or whoever it was, um, that they would give uh, trillions of dollars to banks instead who just gave it to themselves as bonuses and uh, yeah, just didn't didn't do anything good uh, with it. Uh, So, um, okay, so my next topic um, is automation and whether it's destroying jobs or not. So, um big discussion over the last bunch of years is um automation and its effect on unemployment. Um there's there was a lot of like um articles saying that technological unemployment is inevitable. This is, this is actually now that I think about it this is a major part of the Zeitgeist thing um that technological unemployment is inevitable that robots will replace humans in doing jobs um it was basically like the um post-scarcity anarchism thing except without the politics part so they predicted the um end of human toil uh due to automation um but um yeah they thought it would just be this apolitical process that would just happen naturally uh, because you know uh something that's technically better (laughs) will always replace something that's technically worse Um, and, uh, then, you know, eventually we'll just realize, oh, uh, now we need (laughs) to do something different than what we've been doing. And, uh, now nobody has to have jobs anymore. Uh, we can just, uh, do a resource-based economy instead. Um, so in like 2014, there was, um, you know, some study that analyzed, uh, like kind of predicted, uh, the potential for automation for, um, technological unemployment, for getting rid of jobs and um, yeah in that study they found that it would replace a lot of like uh, middle income jobs um, I think like 40% of them or something like that by like 2020 or 2030 um, and uh, so far that has not really uh, panned out um, so I looked at two studies um, starting around like uh, 536 uh, one from MIT and one from the Brookings Institute. Um, so everyone knows what MIT is. If you don't know what the Brookings Institute is, it's like a, a liberal centrist think tank. Um, it's supposed to be like uh, bipartisan or nonpartisan, but uh, that, that just means like centrist. Um, they believe, much like uh, Peter Joseph and uh, Jacques Fresco, that everything is just technically and that uh, politics doesn't matter. Uh, that it's just tribalism and, uh, we just need to manage things correctly. Um, so anyway, yeah. uh, so the MIT study is, uh, decisively, um, anti automation has displaced jobs. Um, it was focused on the two thousands when, um, there was a, a major, uh, dip in employment. Um, and so they were looking at, uh, what the possibility is for, uh, China and other uh, Asian countries being the cause of um, the um, l- the loss of uh, employment for a lot of folks, and uh, a lot of that was was actually even prior to the uh, recession. Um, people were losing their jobs before then, um, and the Brookings study um, says that automation has had an effect, uh, but and and this is what. Uh, I've been maintaining for the last few years now, um, since I've gotten out of the zeitgeist movement and uh, techno optimist crowd. Um, that automation doesn't really cause uh, net unemployment, but what it does do is uh, displace people temporarily and um, lower the barriers to entry for a job um, and you know, basically uh, overall functions kind of like the, the Marxist concept of a reserve army of labor. It's kind of like an implicit threat that you can be replaced at any time. Um, and so the effect is that it uh, reduces wages um, or prevents wages from growing as quickly. So one thing that we all know is that from around 1974 to today, um, productivity and wages have not kept pace with one another. Um, and, uh, just to, um, explain what productivity means, because it, it sounds like it means the amount of stuff that we produce or how, how productive our industry is. But what it actually means is the number of dollars that you get out, uh, for every dollar that you put in. So, uh, if productivity goes up, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean we're producing more stuff. It could just mean, uh we're charging more for the same stuff or uh we're making the same stuff uh while paying the workers less money to to make it um so productivity and wages kept up for almost the entirety of the 20th century and uh that was because of labor unions uh because in order for wages to keep pace with that uh there needs to be uh first of all a a strong balance of power uh in favor of workers um because the like structurally um the balance of power is extremely against workers so uh labor unions by uh grouping uh workers into uh a, you know a single organization a single party um the the bosses of the world are less capable of um just going like if if you demand something better they're less capable of just going to someone else uh to um work under the terms that they want because uh the unions uh will act in solidarity with one another and and if they really have to they'll they'll stop work entirely and just completely uh undermine the business's bottom line. So, um, through solidarity, they achieve a similar effect of, um, you know, being the, the boss and, and being, uh, a company, which is a singular entity. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, so it shifts the balance of power in favor of the workers. And so the workers wages, uh, keep better pace with, uh, productivity and inflation um, but since the 70s, uh, the labor unions have uh, lost quite a bit of their power. Their membership has has gone down a lot. Um, right-to-work laws had, have been passed. Um, I'm in a state that is like the right-to-work state. Uh, you can drive past the National Right-to-Work Building. Um, it's right at the intersection of uh, Braddock Road and uh, the Beltway um, in Northern Virginia. Um, so yeah, if you ever, uh, go past there, um, go ahead and, um, first of all, set that building on fire. Um, hopefully, uh, with, uh, you know, whoever the president of that organization is, uh, inside and, uh, then go, uh, just a few hundred yards away, uh, to the Swiss bakery, which is a really nice, uh, bread bakery, um, that's, uh, right down the street. Um, and have yourself a nice lunch because um, you earned it. Um, <laughs> that was not a real suggestion. If the FBI is listening, um, so anyway, um, yeah. So this brooking study, uh, first of all, it's pretty pretty devoid of any power analysis. So in the intro, they talk about the situation with uh, wages and productivity keeping pace for most of the twentieth century, and then. Uh, wow, puzzlingly, uh, you know, completely baffling uh, economists—they uh, stopped keeping pace with one another, and um, their traditional uh, methods of analyzing the economy uh, don't don't work anymore uh, because they were bad and they have bad assumptions. They're based on bad assumptions, and um, they're stupid, <laughs> and they never worked. Um, so, but somehow they do come to the uh, correct conclusion that. Uh, while automation doesn't necessarily uh add to net displacement of of employment uh what it does do is uh undermine the power of workers and uh lower their wages um, so uh that was that in in the mit study um, study of the 2000s it found that uh you know movement of jobs to overseas industry uh, accounts for uh, 2.4 million uh, jobs in net unemployment during the, the, the 2000s. So, um, so both narratives are, are right are, are somewhat correct in their own way. So, um, you know, stuff moving overseas did in fact uh, cause a huge loss of jobs and automation does, um, does hurt workers but not in the way that we normally think of which is it permanently displaces them and uh leaves them completely jobless uh when actually uh it just does stuff like uh, what uber did which is um undermine an existing industry um by um making things less dependent on uh being a skilled worker or or uh having a traditional employer and uh basically circumventing labor laws and um yeah lowering pay and uh benefits um so um there's there's the automation thing um i i would say that it is possible for automation to destroy jobs uh but i don't think that it will because Um, capitalism extremely benefits from having people working all the time. Uh, That may seem counterintuitive uh, because, you know, a... um, like a uh, just regular intuitive analysis or I guess maybe a Marxist analysis would say um, capitalism wants to uh, reduce costs as much as possible. So, of course, if they have automation available to them, then... Uh, they would just lower. Uh, they would get up, get rid of all the workers. Uh, you know the workers are a detriment. They can strike. Um, they can. You know they uh, need vacations. Uh, they want uh, health insurance. Um, you know they want they want to be paid ever more um, as inflation goes up. Um, they take bathroom breaks. Uh, they are unreliable. Um, they go home and sleep. Um, you know they don't. They don't always like upsell things to customers, uh, even if the boss uh, yells at them to all day. Um, so you would think, yeah, if, sure, of course. Uh, you know, if automation exists, then the capitalists will, of course, uh, employ that. Uh, but you know, there's a number of problems with that. Uh, one is is actually, uh, again, from uh, Blair Fix's, employment and high or uh, personal income distribution and hierarchy. Uh, the more people that you have under you, uh, as a, as a manager, uh, the higher your pay is or the higher the pay you can justify. Um, David Graber wrote a book called uh, bullshit jobs recently. I have not read that one yet. Um, kind of on a not reading kick. (laughs) Uh, this, these studies were the first thing that i read in a, in a while uh you know over the length of like a tweet um so i have not read that book yet but um i i saw someone point out recently uh also referencing Blair Fix's work that a lot of the bullshit jobs that graeber talks about you know jobs that are are just functionally useless and uh don't really serve any social purpose um exist to justify uh, higher pay for managers because they have a higher number of people working under them. So, uh, you know, if, if you manage, uh, 2000 employees versus 500, you know, even if the 1500 of those employees are, are doing functionally useless work, then you can say, well, you know, I do a lot more work, uh, you know, managing these 2000 people than, you know, this guy in this, in this lean company does, uh, managing 500 people. So, Um, I should get a million dollars instead of, um, you know, a hundred thousand dollars, uh, or whatever. So, um, automation is not necessarily going to be used to replace workers, uh, because of that, uh, because fewer workers means, uh, less justification for, um, higher management pay. Um, and also because, um, a machine and a human being are not exactly equivalent are they um if you were to automate your workforce um first of all uh when you do it you have to do it all at once um it i mean you can automate certain functions gradually but like uh you know if you're going to commit to like a an automated assembly line uh you have to do the whole thing at once. Um, because these different machines have to like work together. So they have to, like, uh, they have to be organized and architected to work together. Um, you can't just say, like, uh, pick uh, a bunch of machines off the shelf, um, that are each part of a, you know, manufacturing process. Like, uh, yeah, I have a, this machine um, spins thre- uh, spins uh, wool into thread, and then this machine uh, weaves thread into cloth. And then this machine uh, cuts the cloth into, uh, you know, a pattern. And then this machine sews the pattern together into a shirt. And then this machine puts the shirt in a package. And then this machine uh, puts packages into a box. Um, and then this machine puts it into a truck, um you can't really like build those gradually they have to be like specifically made to work together you can't like get them off the shelf they have to be made to work together um whereas like a uh, you know uh, that process done with humans like the humans can figure out how to make it work together um if you have machines it has to be very precisely done because a machine is stupid and um can't make up for uh, mistakes not even slight ones usually um so if they're not organized specifically to work together and uh engineered to um cooperate with one another then they they may not work or you know maybe they do at first and uh you don't notice some like slight deviation and eventually it it causes some like catastrophic failure in the process um and so this also means that You have to spend a lot of capital up front. So you you need a huge amount of capital um, to even attempt to um, do this automation thing, which, um, you know, on top of needing a lot of capital, uh, it also kind of locks the level of technology into whatever you pay for. So if you see that if everyone is saying that automation is proceeding at a uh, huge rapid pace, Um, and you know, a machine that's supposed to last like five or 10 years is going to be obsolete in 18 months. Why would you bother spending all the capital to replace all the workers? Um, when your machine is going to be (laughs) obsolete soon and your competitors could, you know, just wait a little bit and then buy the, the faster machines and, uh, you know, um, overtake you. Um, and then another thing is, um if your business starts to do poorly like uh if the if a recession happens which everyone is predicting will happen in 2020 um if you have human workers uh you can just fire them until uh you can afford to pay the ones that are remaining on your workforce but if you bought a bunch of machines uh you can't just you know get rid of them and say you know see you later and then you know, save the money that you would have been paying them every two weeks. Um, they're, they're there and you're stuck with them. And the only way you can get rid of them is while recovering your cost is by selling them. And, uh, that puts you in a, in an inferior bargaining position. Um, and, uh, yeah, if your business fails, then again, like a, a competitor could just wait until your business fails. Uh, you know, continuing on with their, Uh, human worker process. And um, once your business fails, you're going to have to liquidate all your assets and they can just buy it on fire sale instead of when you're (laughs) trying to recoup your investment and uh, get like a fair price, a fair price for it with, you know, depreciation factored in or whatever. So um, that's another reason that I don't, I don't think automation necessarily means that workers will be, will be displaced. And uh, I I think the most important reason is that A lot of times they just don't work as well. Um, We've all probably by now had experience with the self-checkouts at um, grocery stores. And while it is nice to avoid having to um, interact with a person um, who has been ordered to make small talk with you and pretend that they care about your day or whatever. And, you know, you aren't really going to unless you get to know them, you know, you're not going to, like, talk about anything serious or get any like you know good interaction out of them. It's just gonna be like you know bullshit small talk. Hi, how are you? Did you find everything okay? Uh, how's the weather outside? That kind of shit. Um, but uh, other than that, you know the uh, self checkout machines are, are vastly inferior to the human cashiers because any slight fuck up and uh, it requires a human to intervene and and come fix it. Or, you know, if, if you're like me and you go every other day to the grocery store to buy alcohol and take it to the self checkout, you have to wait for a person to come check your ID and punch in the numbers, um, to make sure that you could buy that alcohol. Um, and, uh, also, uh, it's really easy to steal shit (laughs) from a self checkout lane. Um, you can easily just like, uh, not scan something and put it in your bag anyway And, uh, you know, initially they they thought of this, so they put scales on the machines, Uh, but as it turns out, uh, it's really hard to make that work with any sort of um, exceptional circumstance, like having a big giant item that weighs a lot that you don't want to take out of the cart, so you have to scan with like a hand scanner, or someone someone leans on it and uh, messes everything up, or, you know, it's not zeroed correctly, or... What have you any of that kind of shit um so uh, they don't have the scale, so it's very easy to steal shit so um and, and you know uh there's also like uh old people just don't like using them because they're they find them confusing uh they find it hard to use them, so there's there's a ton of things working against automation, so we uh you know back in like twenty twenty twelve twenty fourteen we all assumed that, oh yeah, of course machines work better than humans because again like i said before uh you know they don't take breaks they don't want higher wages or anything like that but there's there's actually all sorts of factors that um make automation not so appealing and not so strategically beneficial um yeah so i think i think that's all i'll say about automation uh so the last thing uh that i want to talk about is uh jojo's bizarre adventure which uh, has been on the TV, but I have to admit it's kind of hard to concentrate on talking as well as uh, watching a <laughs> an anime with subtitles. So I'm probably gonna have to back up a couple episodes, but um, yeah, just a little uh, brief thing on JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Um, I think it's based on uh, a manga that came out in like the 90s, the 80s or 90s. Actually, yeah, it's the 80s because... Uh, I mentioned something about like the aesthetic of of all the characters, and someone said, "Oh yeah, it's that '80s thing where like all the guys had huge, giant muscles, and um, they just generally looked like uh, you know cool badasses." Um, so, um, it, but the anime I think didn't start getting released until the 2000s. So that's a really interesting part of it because you know most anime based on a manga um, inevitably comes out with a ton of filler um you know naruto one piece bleach all that all those series that are based on manga um the anime catches up to them and um once it catches up it, it has to put in filler arcs uh to allow the uh the mangaka the author of the the manga to um come out with you know more of the story so that the anime can reproduce it in an anime form um so kind of a unique problem that that anime has um which I don't think has i, I, I guess the only equivalent to that would be like game of Thrones uh which as we all know uh will never be finished because <laughs> george r. r. martin uh has found that he much en- much enjoys the uh fame and attention that he he's getting and um doesn't want the series to end so i think uh I think Game of Thrones solved it in a different way they just sort of went a different way with the series and stop following the books uh but i think that's pretty rare in anime they tend to follow the source material pretty closely um they'll change some stuff but not you know not a lot um so jojo's bizarre adventure has like quite a lot of time uh between the manga and the anime coming out um and so unlike uh any other anime it has uh no filler to my knowledge and the pacing on it is excellent. Uh, like my biggest complaint about the One Piece anime is the pacing is so fucking bad. Um, I, I I still remember like the part where I realized how much I hated uh, the pacing on the anime. Uh, Luffy was fighting, I think it was Do Flamingo, and there was like one like one move that he did. He was basically like uh, falling down. And he was also winding up a, uh, like a, a gum gum punch move. And it took him, it was like, they stretched it out into like two or three minutes. Like he was falling extremely slowly. Um, they showed the same like wind up on the same move like multiple times from different angles. Uh, it was just very bad. Um, but Jojo is exactly the opposite. Um, the, the pacing is outstanding. Um, the first season, uh, just goes by in no time at all. Oh, sorry. There's someone at the door. Yeah. So, um, anyway, um, the, the pacing on Jojo's is, is extremely good. Um, yeah, the first season went by in almost no time at all. Um, and it's just very enjoyable to watch. The The action is really good. Um, that's that's the other thing is like um, you know a lot of action shows a lot of action anime especially is like um, very dialogue heavy. Um, you know there's a lot of time spent uh, the, you know the two guys like facing off with one another um, you know kind of explaining their, their ethos and explaining their moves and all this stuff uh, where uh, Jojo's uh, they do explain some of the, some of the things that the characters are doing, but the vast majority of, of what they're actually doing is, is action is actual fighting it's movement, um, which makes it really, uh, a lot of fun to watch. Um, even if you're not necessarily paying attention to the dialogue, you can still get something out of it. Um, the, um, like the character designs are, are very cool. They're, um, colorful and, and bold, um, surprisingly even though you know um nazis love this series uh very multiracial um characters compared to almost any other anime series you know most of them are you know uh caucasian or japanese looking characters in almost any anime there's a lot of dark-skinned characters in this show um and uh you know it takes place in actual um places even outside of japan um the first couple seasons uh, are in England, I think, and Germany. Um, so not all just centered around Japan, which is pretty cool. Um, and yeah, uh, I I think I would recommend it. Um, it's not necessarily like the smartest show ever, uh, but it's it's fun action. Um, kind of there's like a you know fantasy component to it. Um, it's nice to have on in the background um where you can just like look up and see what's going on in the show um or it's also good to um pay a lot of attention to because uh, it moves very quickly so it it keeps your attention pretty well um and some of the jokes are pretty funny um there's one in an episode i was watching before i started this where uh one of the characters was going to go to the bathroom <laughs> and he runs screaming out of the bathroom and, um, you know, says, What the fuck to the guy who like owns the place? And the guy's like acting coy, like, Oh, then what are you talking about? What's wrong? And he's like, You know what's wrong? Like, what the fuck is with the toilet? And uh, the toilet has a pig head in it. And the guy <laughs> says, Oh, well, yeah, uh, you know, it's the pigsty was uh, built too close to the bottom of the toilet. So. Um, the, when the pigs get hungry, they stick their, their heads out of the toilet bowl. And, uh, one of the guys that lives here, like, uh, yeah, he lets the pig lick his asshole clean stuff. <laughs> Very funny shit. Um, but, um, yeah, I can also see why Nazis love the show so much because, um, first of all, it's about like strong men in power struggles and, uh, women in the show are mostly sidelined. Um, and more importantly, uh, one of the early protagonists is like an actual Nazi soldier. Um, and he's portrayed as like a heroic guy with, uh, with good morals, uh, which of course is batshit. Um, but you know, I'm willing, I I can overlook that for the rest of the show because, uh, he dies and, uh, yeah. Another, I think another really cool thing about the show is, uh, the story is like multi-generational. So, um, the first season uh, follows the life of, of one guy, um, Joseph Joestar, Jonathan Joestar, um, and uh, the subsequent seasons follow like his grandson and uh, his great grandson. And um, so you start off in like Victorian England, and uh, the season I'm currently on is in like modern Japan, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, I don't know of any other stories that have, um, storylines that take place over multiple generations, um, that, that could, uh, be useful in stories that have like, you know, radical sweeping changes to the reality of the story. But, uh, I, th- I think most authors aren't brave enough for that kind of thing. So, uh, I won't, I won't hold my breath for anything else like that. Um, but yeah, uh, i i would say uh if you don't have a problem with uh nazi main character then um jojo's is a cool series to watch uh maybe skip the season with the nazi because you could probably do that um the season that i'm on i think you could watch by itself um so um sorry we haven't done any um anime stuff um But I personally haven't been watching much besides JoJo's um, and uh, Attack on Titan, which is, I think, on hiatus right now. And uh, Chris, I don't think, uh, watches nearly as much anime as I do. Uh, But maybe we'll get Reed back on uh, at some point in the future and talk about uh, the latest One Piece chapters and uh, where that story is going. Because uh, from what I hear, it's getting very exciting. So I, I I have to catch up on that, but... Uh, maybe we'll talk about it in the future so uh, that's all I have Um, I hope this was okay (laughs) Um, I've tried to do a solo episode before and it it went very poorly but um, I think I'm a more seasoned podcaster now so I'm better at filling in time and uh, deciding when to pause and uh, collect my thoughts instead of uh, just try to continue spinning my wheels or whatever so um, yeah if you enjoyed that listen to our other ones if you want to look at our other podcasts, our site is uh, post. No, God, I keep doing that. <laughs> it's uh, neighborsciencepodcast dot com. Uh, our Twitter is at neighborsidepod. Um, I'm at handle of rye. Uh, Chris is at solidarity underscore goth. Uh, Peter is at book cheekite. Although he has not been tweeting because he's just so busy. Um, please give us a rating on iTunes uh, because that helps with the algorithms and all that stuff. Um. Oh, we're on Spotify now, so if you prefer to listen to podcasts on Spotify, well, I don't know if we're on now, but I told Podbean to host me on Spotify, and uh, so hopefully we'll be on there soon. Um, And we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash neighbor science. For most episodes, uh, there's a lot of audio that I end up cutting out. Um, I usually put up the the pre-show chat. Uh, That me and Chris or Peter have uh, before we actually start the episode. Um, So you'll, you know, every episode uh, yields like half an hour to an hour of of bonus audio. So if if you subscribe to the Patreon at any level, then uh, you can listen to all the bonus audio. And uh, that includes all the bonus audio that we've released prior to this. Um, Which is mostly uh, me sounding like a dumbass or making a joke that's just too edgy for... Uh, the mainstream broadcasts <laughs> to, uh, uh, to have. So uh, check that out. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll have a new episode for you next week. And uh, if not, uh, I will talk to you next year. Bye.